Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Jonathan Gustin. Jonathan is a psychotherapist, meditation teacher, and founder of the Purpose Guide Institute. In the conversation, Jonathan and I discuss discovering your soul-level purpose, how we grow into our purpose, navigating our inner voice, ways to think about fear, how to live the questions, and much more. If you're interested in learning more about Jonathan and the Purpose Guide Institute, you can visit purposeguides.org. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Jonathan Gustin. To begin the conversation, I was hoping we could discuss the video that you put together for your son Yee's 18th birthday. Yeah, sure. Well, um, well, the first thing to say is I'm a purpose guide, which is to say that I help people um, to discover their soul level purpose. And along the way, uh, it occurred to me that no one really ever uh, told me <laughs> when I was a kid um, that such a thing existed. Um, and so uh, my school, Purpose Guides Institute, we have a lot of different wonderful teachers coming through, some of whom are quite old. Uh, Joanna Macy's 92, for instance. And these are people my son will not get to meet uh, when he's an adult. So when they came to the school, I would ask them to offer a birthday wish to my son once he turns 18. At the moment, he's 12, uh, so seven years from, from now, or six years from now. Um, and it was wonderful because it, it, it opened something in their hearts, like a father asking on behalf of their young son for once he gets older. And the answers were really lovely, and they were quite different. Right, Because when you ask someone, all right, would you give a gift to my son on his 18th birthday, um, answering the question, how do I find my soul's purpose? What is the method or technique or path or journey to discover and embody my soul's purpose? And of course, the you know non-duality teacher had his thing, and an activist had their thing, and a soul teacher had their thing, and a depth psychologist had another answer. And I was really pleased with it, and um, I decided actually to edit it in such a way as that it wouldn't only be for him six years from now, uh, that also people could just go on YouTube and go to, you know, Purpose Guides Institute and watch it for themselves. And some of my friends actually have shown it to their kids when they turned 18. Um, and I'm really glad for that. Yes, I was really impressed with the answers. It is a beautiful video that was put together. I was wondering if you could think back, Jonathan, to your 18th birthday. How might a, a video like that maybe change your uh, trajectory. Yeah, it would have been really helpful. Um, 
to mm. be honest. I mean, in many ways, I had a very lucky childhood. Um, my parents had a stable relationship. Um, there was no, you know, caloric deprivation. Father made a good living. So, so all those sorts of things, what I would call the middle world of life, were um, pretty stable. But I had early on, uh, starting at about 12, maybe a little earlier, um, a spiritual longing in me that didn't really come from my parents or my background religion. Um, and the it had sort of two directions, let's say. On the one hand, I wanted to experience, back then I called it ultimate truth, um, the transcendent. I wanted to experience what I would now call unitive intimacy or classical enlightenment. Mm. But there was another impulse as well, which was to serve um, the world as a demonstration of love, to make an impact, to, um, to be there for life in a way that would support it and its flourishing. And so I began to disambiguate at a very young age that on the one hand, there's wisdom, and on the other hand, there's wisdom in action. On the mm. one hand, there's um, the fertile emptiness, and on the one hand, there's emptiness dancing. And so these two spiritual dimensions, I would roughly describe as spirit or moksha on the one hand, and um, soul and dharma or our sacred work on the other. And so if I had had a, a film at 18 to watch, uh, like my son Yi does now, um, it would have really helped clarify uh, the distinction between these two, because it, it was up to me to figure out that these were uh, different yet complementary. Um, all the books I was reading mostly, I mean, I was reading a little bit of Jung, so I had a bit of the soul piece. But mostly it was, you know, the classical enlightenment of Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta. It was all about moksha and liberation. But I was also very interested in what happens when we burrow down into our depths um, underneath ego, but discover something that's unique, but at a spiritual level. And sometimes that's called a mythopoetic identity. Mythopoetic was a, a term coined by J.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings and then made famous by um, the poet Robert Bly. But a, a, a neo-Jungian uh, named um, Bill Plotkin, he coined the term mythopoetic identity, which I really love. Like, who, who are we in a sort of a mythological and poetic sense? And for me, I found out at 20 that my mythopoetic identity was whole person midwifery, that my job, uh, my place in the ecology of life was to be a midwife to the wholeness of the people that I work with. What kind of insights or signs gave you that at such a young age, Jonathan? Well, um, I was really interested in, in classical enlightenment, as I was saying, and so um, I went up north. I'm, I'm from Canada, and uh, I went even more north to a little <laughs> cabin in northern Ontario, and I was doing a, just a solo Zen retreat. Uh, but, you know, I'm like 20 years old at this time, 
Uh, I think I took a semester off of college. Uh, I can't quite remember when it was precisely. And between meditations, so my mind was pretty quiet and I was in something of an altered state. And like any 20-year-old, I was contemplating my life. I mean, what am I going to do with this one wild, precious life, as the poet Mary Oliver put it? So um, I'm lying on the couch. This, uh, this cabin has a couch. And I'm contemplating. And I have a kind of vision, let's say. It's hard to describe a mystical vision, but it looks almost like a, like a, a negative of a, a woodblock carving. And I saw sort of etched, as it were, in the screen of my mind, um, a picture of me being a midwife, but not catching babies um, as, a, as a classical or traditional midwife does, but actually helping to be a support to a person's emerging wholeness. And the words came, whole person midwifery. And I had never heard those words before quite like that. And so I think this was one of the signals to me that this was an authentic vision because it wasn't me sitting there thinking up like, okay, what shall I do in my life? Hmm, how about whole person midwifery? That that wasn't the way it worked. And at any rate, a 20-year-old, a, a you know, masculine guy wasn't really, you know, the word that I would have chosen. But it really was perfumed with the truth of my destiny. I could feel it. It, it excited me. I was also scared of it. I also realized it would take decades to apprentice to that soul core um, myth. And uh, so, you know, that's along the way. Uh, I acquired the skill set of a psychotherapist, of a meditation teacher, and of a purpose guide to enable me to become more adequate to serve that mythopoetic identity. If you could think back, obviously, as we're talking about it, this was many, many decades ago. And today, how might your definition of this soul level purpose be different today. Any thoughts there? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, and this may not be true for everybody, but, but it is for me. Um, it hasn't changed. Mm. There's something timeless um, about a mythopoetic identity mm. in that it is, it comes from soul. Now my ego and personality and intellect have updated my understanding of what that is, both through experience and guiding and reading and studying and meditating. But the, the essential core or seed, it's as if I'm like meant to grow into it. There's this mm -hmm. wonderful word in Greek that um, Aristotle apparently coined, entelechy. And he said that the entelechy of um, like an acorn is the oak tree. And so it's meant to, its destiny is to be an oak, not a maple, not a poplar, not an apple tree, not a daffodil or a sunflower. It, it, it is being sort of magnetized or pulled into its entelechy, its destiny. And likewise, I feel that whole person midwife is something that I slowly grow into. And it seems to me, this is unproven, obviously, that even if I, you know, live to be 200 years old, which is impossible anyhow, um, that I would still be growing into it. 
because mm. midwifing a a homo sapien a human being has it seems to be an infinitely deep uh undertaking that there's sort of no end to a human being discovering um greater depths inside of themselves so yeah there's something sort of stable about the mythopoetic identity but then it meets life and life is dynamic so it's constantly the iteration or the delivery vehicle for the mythopoetic identity changes but the core image in my case seems to stay rather stable at least you know i'm 54 now well we'll see what happens next year but it's <laughs> been you know 34 years so <laughs> it seems to be a universal thing in so many different traditions how do you compare your language to say calling or dharma i think of some of the best selling books out there man's search for meaning or purpose driven life how do you differentiate or 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 see similarities yeah yeah i love victor frankl's book man's search for meaning so yeah i think meaning um is a really beautiful synonym um for mm. for what i talk about when i'm talking about soul level purpose um the way i sort of disambiguated is is that there's sort of a triple purpose of life um to wake up to grow up and to show up and the waking up part it's not interesting to everybody but for those who sort of are on the scent of it the perfume of it the mm. experiencing that classical enlightenment the undivided the timeless the limitless that is one purpose in life is to experience um spiritual awakening mm. and then in the middle world our everyday personality and ego of course we want to be happy i mean you know even the buddha or jesus or whomever um if you ask them would you prefer to be happy or unhappy the answer is always happy and so um we in the middle world we attempt to really make that which is unconscious conscious and bring what's in the shadow into the light and this enables us to be sort of a a full functioning human being at the level of personality so that there all these sort of subpersonalities or facets of self can act as a as a whole um and then there's this third purpose which is to show up with our soul level purpose as a what as a gift to life as a demonstration of love and support to the universe that is really given birth to us and so there's a kind of a reciprocity there and so i love the word meaning and then then the question is well which level of meaning are we talking about and so when i say the word purpose mostly i'm referring to the underworld journey that burrowing down into our mm-hmm. depths um and the word dharma i think dharma and moksha are really helpful these are sanskrit words and moksha is sort of that liberation that upper world you know classical enlightenment associated with the buddha or you know whom whatever sage uh you favor um but dharma dharma is a huge word it's got a lot of facets you know but one of it is like what is your calling your destiny your work your obligation sometimes it's even used uh, the translation is even duty what is your duty in this lifetime 
And so one of my duties in the middle world is to be a good husband to my wife. We've been together 24 years. To be a good uh, father to my son. These are duties of a husband and father. But at a soul level, my duty is to support this mythopoetic identity, to be whole person midwife to the people who choose to work with me as in the capacity of guide. So yeah, I love the word dharma. Uh, dharma, purpose, meaning, destiny are, uh, are synonyms, at least for me. How about soul? How do you see soul connecting with concepts like Buddha nature or the true self? Yeah, soul, soul is a tricky word. I, I love it, which is why I use it so <laughs> often. Um, so people are often talking about different things when they use the word soul. Um, and I think one of the things that makes it such an appealing word is it does elude a very specific identity, uh, uh, definition, just as the word spirit does, or even God. So here's how I use it. Um, that first of all, soul is actually an organ of perception. This is a Sufi teaching from mm -hmm. Ibn Arabi and, um, and from others. And so that imagination, soul as imagination, I'm not talking about fantasy. I can, I can buy a lottery ticket and then fantasize winning and then you know choose the exotic car that I, I will choose to purpose. That's a fantasy and that's fine. But imagination is something that it, it, it comes to us from soul. Great artists and poets are uh, connected to this. So if this is true, if there's a whole faculty of perception, a whole faculty of knowing, but that is relatively unused because we tend to be so intellectually oriented, then soul is that capacity, that organ of perception, which allows us to receive our mythopoetic identity. So soul is perception, soul is imagination. And then I would also add to that soul as place, that there is a, a niche or niche, depending on how you pronounce it, that we are meant to occupy in life, a place on the planet, but also a place in the human and more than human community. Uh, Bill Plotkin, again, is someone who's really spoken to this just so beautifully. So when we are connected to all of life, what is ours to do? What is our obligation, our dharma, our duty to how to love the world? So, you know, my sister's a doctor. Well, that's great. That's a beautiful way of loving the world. But uh, I'm not into all that blood and guts and gore that she has to deal with. <laughs> so she's occupying that niche. But for me, as a, a whole person midwife, that's a very different place for a human being to occupy. Um, so I like, I like uh, defining soul in part as the place that we are meant to occupy to give our gifts to the world. And when working with people one-on-one, -on -one, how do you connect the dots with soul and this soul-level purpose in everyday life, if you, if you have any thoughts there? Maybe say a little more about that question. 
Well, when you speak about soul, this organ of perception, if you were working with someone one-on-one, are there any examples or analogies that, that come into mind where this meets up with, with everyday life? Hmm. 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 Okay. You know, in, in some ways, um, they run in parallel. Hmm. So, you know, today I, I made my coffee, I meditated, I did some weightlifting, I answered some emails. So, you know, I'm taking care of the body, waking the body up, uh, brushing its teeth, um, you know, exercising and so forth. So this is one of the obligations or duties in the everyday world um, that we have. Now, uh, for those of us, and not everyone feels this way, but many of us do, we crave meaning. We want like the hardcore distilled mm-hmm. stuff. We, we need it to feel really alive. Um, and it's not a, a diss on anybody if they don't feel that way, but many people really do. And so, in a sense, whole person midwife and Jonathan um, are, are sort of uh, are parallel lives. So if I'm watching, last night I'm watching YouTube and, you know, I don't even remember what I was watching. It probably wasn't high quality. Um, and so what was I doing? I was entertaining myself. And, oh, yeah, I always remember it was Netflix. I was watching Ozark, uh, a great TV show. So I'm watching Ozark. But that, that wasn't necessarily um, anything to do with my mythopoetic identity. It was just the enjoyment of watching a, a well-constructed drama. Simultaneously, I make more and more space in my life for that which is really deep and meaningful and that makes an impact and supports the world. So the more I offer um, time, space, attention, awareness, consciousness to my soul-level purpose, that begins to occupy more and more of my day. You could say that the center of gravity of one's life moves from the fleeting and passing pleasures of, you know, everyday life to something that's much deeper. That doesn't eclipse it, you know, even if you're a a soul-awakened sage, you know, you're still going to enjoy a nice meal and friendship and (laughs) whatever it may be. But more and more, the center of your life um, changes. So, yeah, if I'm just playing baseball with my son, um, then we're playing catch. And it's great. And I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't suppose I'm his purpose guide. I'm his dad. If he mm-hmm. wants me as his purpose guide, one day he'll let me know. Um, but, you know, that's, that's probably not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I think in some ways we live these three worlds as one life. So it's like sort of three worlds or dimensions, spirit, ego, and soul. But in another way, it's just one life. But the accent of attention kind of changes. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. There's a quote by Jung where it goes, people will do anything no matter how absurd in order to avoid facing their own souls. What do you think is is meant there, and is that something, um, you know, that connects with you and in your work? 
Yeah. <laughs> Jung. I, I could study <laughs> Jung uh, for a hundred years. <laughs> a true genius. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, here's my guess, right? I, I don't, I can't really speak for Jung, but um, it, when we approach soul, it's, it's limitless. It's, it's unfathomable from the standpoint of ego. And so it causes a kind of a disequilibrium in our everyday personality and ego. Egos, although not technically even real, still don't want to die. They'd like to stay in control. Mine does. I assume yours does. I assume all the listeners um, <laughs> have this desire to be in control. Well, when we approach something like spirit or God or soul, we are encountering a power greater than our conventional selves. So why would we want to avoid it, as, as uh, Jung is pointing out? Um, because it can feel overwhelming, destabilizing. But it's actually destabilizing in a good way. It will draw us into a reality that is actually more indigenous to what we really are. In the end, I think there is a sense even in people who wouldn't call themselves spiritual, that this thing called ego is ultimately insubstantial. You can kind of feel it. And mm -hmm. then when we come to approach soul, part of us wants to avoid it because it's scary and overwhelming. And so we'll, you know, construct an egoic project. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want lots of money. I want um, accolades. And all these things are pleasurable to an extent, of course. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't satisfy that soul level itch. So at some point, for some of us, we actually find the courage, sometimes actually desperation, um, sometimes both courage and desperation, to allow ourselves to allow the what? the soul tidal wave to come over us. You touched on a couple points there around desire and, and letting go that I'm really excited to get into. But before we get too far into that, there's something that, that came up when you were on uh, Buddha at the gas pump. You spoke about a default purpose, which I found really interesting. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So I, I don't think purpose is just something for people who are spiritual and want the, the you know, uh, most deep, unalloyed, you know, pure meaning uh, possible. I think because human beings are narrative creatures, we're storytellers, that by definition, we all have a purpose some meaning even even a you know a, a nihilist <laughs> has has a certain cosmology of purpose that there isn't one um so i think if we don't if we don't wake up to our soul level purpose then something is going to occupy that place and so where are we going to draw that from our families and society so you just watch enough television and, and YouTube and Facebook and whatever, 
and you're going to quickly get, you know, the 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 default purpose, right? Be well liked, good looking, thin, rich, you know, s- something powerful, successful, uh, and so forth. And again, I'm not saying that those things are wrong or bad. They're they're actually desirable in a certain measure, um, but they're not indigenous to us. They're not they're not coming from our depths. They're things that are. Uh, desirable, but that's different than saying a purpose. So um, everybody is living a purpose, whether they're conscious of it or not. And that purpose can be either taken by default because we haven't found our soul level purpose, or it can be a created purpose, one that we made up from ego for ourselves. And then the best, in my opinion, is when we listen to that still small voice within and we hear from our depths what our soul level purpose is. And so if I'm correct in this, that everybody has a purpose, then the question is around the quality of it. Is it default, created, or soul level? It seems to be so challenging to differentiate between those, I think of Viktor Frankl, who we discussed this deep sense of meaning. Without it, people distract themselves with pleasure. Uh, I'm assuming many people, myself, people listening, sometimes that default purpose or may, I, I wonder, does it does it feel like in the process that it is a it is a meaningful purpose. What's your experience in, in working with people? Yeah. Can you determine that while you're on it? Or do you often just, I guess, find out at the end of it and when you feel maybe a bit unfulfilled? Yeah. Well, I think unfulfillment is actually part of it, isn't it? Because, mm. um, well, so here's a, here's a story. So I graduated from graduate school and started working as a psychotherapist. That was my day job as I continued to train to be a whole person midwife and a purpose guide. And um, I made uh, $30,000 at the time, and I thought that was good. But then I thought, you know, if I could earn $10,000 more, that would be really great. And then I was successful at that. And then I think... You're going to know what I'm going to say next. Um, I was like, you know, if I could earn 10000 more, if I could earn 50000 a year, then I would feel secure and happier. And there's a little bit of truth to that, um, that, you know, you do feel more secure when you're able to save a little bit and, and buy a few more things. But I noticed this just kept happening, right? 50000 turned into sixty, And when does it end? When does it end? So, you know, you go to Jeff Bezos or whomever, and they have, I don't know, a hundred billion or something. I'm not sure. Um, and then they keep going. So what's, what's driving that? Um, and at some point we realize that these sorts of things, whether it's financial security or the size of your yacht or, you know, whatever it may be, it's like, oh, we come to get we come to the understanding this isn't going to work and and indeed there are studies i read this one a long time ago so it might be more money now but it said um happiness increases uh, the more money you earn 
up into about $72,000. After that, um, diminishing returns and basically very little to no happiness gained. And that made sense to me because um, if I were very poor, I wouldn't be able to afford health care or good quality food or a vacation or whatever it is. So to a degree, that survival dance, safety, security, a certain amount of flourishing is desirable. But then, you know, how good a car do you actually need? How, How great does the wine you drink have to be? And so at some point, if we're lucky, and this doesn't happen for everybody, we have an epiphany. We wake up. I'm very glad I had it. Um, it took me a while. And at some point I was like, I absolutely do not need more money. It's not that I wouldn't want it. If it came to me, great. I'm like everybody else. Sure. More money. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. But I am disabused of the notion that it's going to make me feel safer or happier. It's mm-hmm. not going to be the case. Now, if you're just earning a minimum wage at, 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 you know, bagging groceries or something, that then yes, you may actually still get a real bump in happiness and safety. But at, at a certain point, that runs out. And then the question is, well, then what is my purpose? If my survival dance is taken care of, if I'm flourishing to a decent degree, you know, I've achieved a kind of a middle class, you know, lifestyle, then what? Do I go to upper middle class, upper class, uber rich? And so um, it was Harley Swiftier who said, once the survival dance is taken care of, then we have the opportunity to listen, perceive, and receive our sacred dance. You, mm. can't, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. Uh, and you don't need a second and third and fourth car or second, third and fourth house. And again, you know, if you have the money and you want to do that, well, I, you know, it, it's probably fun. Um, but the survival dance is not the only thing. If, if you're lucky, if you're right now, if you're listening to this and you're in, you know, a war zone in Syria, that's a different situation. Right, I'm in California. There's uh, where I am. There are no fires at the moment, so I'm in a, a relatively safe and comfortable position that enables me to engage in these deeper dimensions of purpose. And that's what I would say to the people who are listening in on this podcast: is you know, recognize if you are safe and secure and relatively comfortable you have an opportunity to direct your attention to purposes far deeper than just survival, safety, security, success, and the like. Let's say someone listening is inspired to take some time and and listen. It does seem that there are some universal, I think of them a bit as as obstacles, maybe the inner critic, the imposter syndrome, resistance, fear Mm. that also seem Mm. to come along with maybe hearing a a bit of that soul level purpose. How do you, how do you think about some of, some of that? Yeah. 
Yeah. I, in, in, in the courses I teach, I say there's sort of two big baskets of mm. practices. Uh, on the one hand, there's soul encounter, the direct access methods to connecting with soul, to speaking to soul and cultivating the ability to listen to soul. And I can speak to that if you want later. But what you're talking about are what are the voices of resistance and fear and reservation and concern that get in the way. If, uh, if there were none of those for any sort of spiritual development, we'd have, I would imagine, a lot more Buddhas walking around <laughs> and a lot more soul-enlightened people walking around. But what happens is the ego throws up its concerns so we could call these sub-personalities. It's a you know, neo-Jungian way of, of, of speaking about these dimensions. The protector, for instance. Mm. So the protector voice comes up and says, well, this sounds, this sounds dangerous, <laughs> allowing soul. Like, if soul exists, it sounds like a greater force and power than my ego. Right. First of all, the protector may actually protect us from even the, the idea of soul. It may say, well, this is probably just new age fooey and let's just stay clear of it. And indeed, the protector voice is important. If we didn't have a strong protector, every commercial we would, you know, be exposed to on the radio or TV, you know, we'd be like, oh, wow, that deodorant's really going to just change my life. And, you know, <laughs> it's probably not. <laughs> so, um, so protector voices have a place. They really do. Um, but their job is to protect you. And so that's kind of what they do. They're, they're a hammer and everything looks like a nail to it. So they come up and they say things like, um, I... What if I discover my soul level purpose and I'm not good at it? Or I'm good at it, but um, people don't like it. Or they make fun of me. Or uh, I lose a friend over it. Or it will change my relationship with my spouse or friends. So these are real concerns. So what I do in my programs is I work with those voices. I don't try to ignore them or run over them like a little speed bump. They are part of the wholeness of a human being. And so, yeah, there's a tender, vulnerable place when we are on the edge of expanding our identity and living more deeply into our wholeness than we're in a risky situation, at least from the ego standpoint. And so what I try to do is create a win-win situation where the protector is valued cared about, listened to, and we create a, a, how shall we say it, an agreement. So I wouldn't be okay if Sol said, uh, ditch your wife, ditch your son, and, and I'll gi we'll give you even more you know, deep meaning. I'd say, nope, that's too far. Sorry, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sincere enough to do that. Or if it said, uh, um, you have to live homeless on the street. No, there are people for whom they are ready for that. They're made for that. Um, but no, thank you. I, I want a bed and a roof and a refrigerator. Um, thank you very much. So, so there's kind of an agreement, right? So that I can have my family, um, some of the creature comforts that I really care about, like living in a home, um, and 
so so the protector gets what it wants, what it needs, and soul gets what it wants and what it needs. So it's a partnership. Jonathan is just a regular human being. Joshua is just a regular human being. We have our desires, and that's good. It's wholesome, unless we go you know crazy with it. Um, so I like this win-win where ego and soul and even spirit become kind of an integrated family that supports one another rather than each of them vying for dominance. Mm. That seems really important. I, uh, that, that's really helpful. When you think about fear and you're working with someone, do you see it as a, a bit of a good sign? I think of Stephen Pressfield when he writes about resistance of of fear being a bit of a good sign and an indicator. Yeah. Well, fear, fear's not a bad thing. Mm. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm driving. Part of the reason I'm paying attention is because I know that motor vehicles are big, heavy, and powerful, and you can have an accident, become injured, or die. So there's a certain level of respect, or if I'm, you know, walking along uh, the edge of a cliff, or even just crossing the street. So I don't, I don't actually think fear is uh, a problem. It's a kind of vigilance. It's a kind of appreciation for the dangers of life. And the dangers aren't only physical, they can also be emotional. Right. So if if I had discovered my soul level purpose, the mythopoetic identity, whole person, midwife, and then started living it, and 100% of the people who I shared this with uh, scorned me, laughed me, and banished me, I probably wouldn't have continued to do it. I'm just not that courageous. Mm. Because um, esteem needs are important. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy, I mean, in some ways, it's not the greatest model, but it does hold something. Um, We do want to be esteemed. We don't need to be esteemed by everybody all the time. That's a pathology. But uh, it's a very rare and courageous person who would be willing to be scorned by everybody in order to live their soul level purpose. I am not that courageous. And so... um, we can actually have that double win where we have the courage to be authentic, the courage to live what is really true in our hearts with the proviso that if everybody is laughing at us and everyone is scorning us, that we can dial it back. We can take the foot off the gas, retool what's happening because, you know, that's, I don't, I don't experience life as wanting us to make a sacrifice of that kind, that we are a whole person and safety is important, security is important, belonging is important, self-esteem is important. It's not all about self-actualization and self-transcendence. Yes, Mm -hmm. those are the, the apex of the pyramid, but that doesn't mean they're the only important thing. It's an entire pyramid. You go to, you know, uh, Egypt, well, you, you can't have the apex without the base. And so I attempt to receive the people I work with in their wholeness and work on these apex things like self-actualization and self-transcendence in a way that respects and enhances the health of the base of the pyramid. How do you see 
success in soul level purpose. I think of the Bhagavad Gita, this concept of having control over the action, not necessarily the fruits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. In some ways, I mean, this is going to sound like an overstatement, but but I think it's partly true. In some ways, the result is none of my business, mm. right? So like, uh, let's just use a simple example. I'm raising my son. I am, I am attempting <laughs> to be a good dad. Um, no doubt I'm making mistakes all over the place. And he lets me know occasionally. And, and when he's an adult, he'll probably really tell me what I did wrong. And maybe I have to go into therapy for it. Um, so it's my job to do the best I can. But then it's up to him to move with the kind of parenting he received in ways that I, I actually regard as not my business. My business is to do the fathering. And then his business is to receive it in the way that he he's destined to. And so the same thing with whole person midwifery, or when I'm in the role of therapist, I try to do my very best work as a clinician or my very best work as a meditation teacher. But I don't have like a death grip on like you, your bipolar disorder must be changed by the end of this session, or you must be, you know, in, have an abiding enlightenment by, you know, the end of this meeting. No, it's up to life. It's, it's really not my, um, it's not in my purview to rush somebody's evolution. It's my purview to be the best support I can to a friend or, or my wife or my kid or someone I'm working with. And then it's between them and, and their own soul as to where they take it. Hmm. Yeah. I really like that statement. The results are none of my business. Maybe easier said than than done in the in the in the heat of life. Are there any thoughts on anything that may have helped you over these years loosen that grip on the outcome or is is there that question that that comes to mind, how am I doing? as you're progressing along? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing to admit is that there's a voice in me that does care and it cares passionately about results, right? Mm. It's, it's, I would go so far as to say it's addicted to the results. And that's, that's okay. It's part of me. I have a voice that's very ambitious. Well, great. There it is. You know, some people have it. Some people have it less. So, you know, some people, the Jeff Bezoses of the world are obviously, you know, just very, very ambitious. So we, we own the fact that we are as ambitious as we are. So, yes, of course, I would prefer that the things that I'm involved with are successful in a conventional sense. Um, so I attempt... <laughs> To, to be successful. Um, and it can be as simple as just, you know, I'm, I'm, my son's practicing his pitching and I'm trying to catch the ball. Um, and when I, you know, miss the catch, you know, I'm like, ah. So, yeah, I prefer to, to, to be successful. That said, um, after some time, after lots of failures of dropping the ball, both proverbially and, 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 and literally, 
you realize you're going to drop some of them. Not everything you do is going to be successful. It just isn't meant to be that way. So there's a kind of humility um, that balances out the ambition. So I'm, I'm just as ambitious as I've ever been. Um, but mm-hmm. I think maybe over the decades, the humility maybe grows a little bit more. Like, well, you know, I'll do my best and it, it, it could just be a flop. It could be a success. It could be a huge success. Um, and it still stings. You know, no one enjoys when you, when they do something and, and it's ignored or scorned or no one likes it. Um, and it's okay to feel a little, you know, hurt or whatever. You know, we're humans. It's, it's not about always being happy. And I think that's another thing that really helps me is that um, I'm not under the impression that my marriage is meant to make me happy. Or being a father is meant to make me happy. Or being a whole person midwife is meant to make me happy. The truth is they often do make me happy. But sometimes, you know, marriage is just can be really hard or parenting or whatever your soul level job is. So I, I think if you have the idea that living your soul level purpose is, is, the, is the final holy grail that will always make your life easier or happy... Um, yeah, then you're in trouble. But if what you want is more opportunity for a deeper, wider impact, um, then you you will enjoy it. It it really will uh, scratch an itch that um, nothing else can. But it won't do it a hundred percent of the time. I, if I if I had something, I'd I'd. Uh, I'd share it with you, <laughs> but there's, there's nothing, you know, I don't know, heroin. I've never tried it, but uh, I'm under the impression that it makes you happy 100% of the time, you know, until it kills you. Mm. So, uh, which is why, you know, we don't recommend it. Something that came up in the, the video we discussed in the beginning for your son, Yi, the, the depth psychologist, James Hollis, stressed the importance of living the questions not necessarily yeah. the answers. How do you yeah. see the role of, of questions in, in our, our soul level purpose? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. We think that questions are conventionally, we think that questions are meant to come to an end and resolve in an answer. And in, mm-hmm. and, and in many cases, that's the case. You know, one plus one, what is it? Two, resolved, done. We learn that, we memorize it, we're, we're complete with that equation. But when it comes to um, spiritual questions, they actually are limitless. They're timeless. They just keep going. So if you answered the question, who am I? What am I? Or what is my soul level purpose? If we think there's an object that is the answer, then there would be no more evolution, no more growth. You'd come to the end of the quest and you'd be done. My experience is different than that, that you can be done with finding the image, the unique image, but then it keeps growing. It would be like the acorn discovering that its DNA, its uh, architecture, is to become an oak. But the oak can grow for hundreds of years. Some trees can grow for thousands of years. So there's no definitive answer 
for a tree, it keeps expressing itself. It keeps fruiting. If it's an apple tree or an acorn tree for that matter, it keeps fruiting again and again and again, meeting life like in, a, in an effulgent way, moment to moment. So what is my soul's purpose is not a question just to yield an answer, although answers will come. Um, it's a question to keep with you for your entire life, your entire life. Same thing as what am I or who am I? Um, and when, when we make that switch, it is, it's huge. We're no longer looking for an object to acquire as a subject to feel whole and complete. Rather, we're a subject or a verb constantly evolving, changing, and growing. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery that is unfolding in real time. And if we're long-lived, we will keep developing. Uh, it's the Mariana Trench of the ocean that just keeps going deeper. There's no bottom, at least I haven't found one. If there's a bottom, I haven't gotten there yet. And I suspect there isn't. Mm. Our time has really flown by, Jonathan. This is this has been great. Our We could continue on. Um, and I want to be so respectful of your time. This is... Where do you point people interested in in learning more about you and in you know people that are curious for more? Well, if you're interested in the work I'm doing, you can go to the website, um, which is how we do it these days, purposeguides.org, <laughs> purposeguides.org. Um, and there are these free introductions, um, that I do on zoom. Um, there's this video that you referred to a little film I made for my son, Yi, um, uh, that's on the website. There's a paper or a chapter rather, uh, from a book, uh, that I was asked, uh, to write. Um, so yeah, yeah, if you like watching, you know, videos or reading, um, those might be the first things just sort of to dip your toe um, into, uh, into, into this work in that, in that chapter, uh, that's on the website, I actually talk about eight facets of purpose, which I think is really helpful to people to see that there's a difference between this mythopoetic identity and the delivery vehicle in which you offer it. So I'm a whole person midwife, but on my business card, it doesn't say that that's no one knows what that means. It says, you know, conventional things like psychotherapist, meditational, meditation teacher, and then unconventional things like purpose guide. Um, so yeah, that would be a good, uh, a good place to just um, peruse and see if this kind of inquiry um, is for you. And it's, it's a pretty universal inquiry. Like, what is my life meant for? You know, whether you're destined to work with me or not is another matter. But whether it's Jung or Sudrawardi or, or even Arabi, the Sufis we were talking about, or, um, you know, or uh, uh, the Hindu tradition where we talked about Dharma and Moksha, you know, this question is really near and dear to the human experience. When we have some safety and security, then we have this opportunity to ask ourselves, well, what are we meant for? 
What is my unique way of loving life? There's this great quote. I use it all the time. Uh, the man's name is Frederick Beekner. He's a theologian, and he is given the best definition of purpose I've ever heard. I wish I had, I had written this myself. And he said, find the place, find the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep uh, hunger meets. Find the place where your deep gladness and the world's hunger meets. So I love being a purpose guide. It's my joy to be a purpose guide. And there are people, the students who come to my school, who it is their hunger to be guided to their own mythopoetic identity. And so when we find that place, it's not just what makes us come alive. Like I love uh, downhill skiing and live jazz. These bring me alive. They're really fun for me. I'm, I just really enjoy them. But it, it's not the world's hunger. <laughs> no one wants to watch me <laughs> ski. No one wants to watch me listening to live jazz. And why would they? Um, and then there are hungers for which I'm not meant for, right? So I, I, I mentioned my sister, like being a doctor. Well, that's great work, being doing a palliative care uh, you know, physician, but that's, that's not my joy. I wouldn't enjoy that. So if we could find that place where those two worlds meet, our joy and our gladness and the world's hunger, ache, and longing, then we have a very lucky life. Then our survival dance and our sacred dance is actually the same thing. And I, I've done this thought experiment. It's un, untested. If I won the lottery and I had $10 million or whatever I won, um, how would my life change? And indeed, I would drink better wine and, and stay at better hotels and, and, you know, I don't know, whatever it is that one, one, one does with that amount of money. Um, but I don't think I would change my work at all. Right now I work in part because it pays for my food and the heat and all that. Um, but it, it's actually something I would do anyway. I would mm. do, I went to uh, San Quentin prison a few times working with lifers and um, uh, doing this purpose work. And I had this thought like, well, what would I do if I were uh, in prison? And, mm. it, and it was pretty clear to me, I would be doing this work. Now, not everyone in San Quentin prison, you know, attended my class, you know, it's 4,000 men. Um, it was a select few that were like, yeah, I want this. Mm. And, you know, so when you find your soul level purpose, it's you, you can't help but want to do it. Uh, even if you have all the money in the world, um, you still, it's your greatest joy because it's that place where you're gladness and the world's hunger meets hmm. that is great and a beautiful spot to to wrap it up jonathan gustin thank you for your time today it has really been a pleasure mm. pleasure for me too thanks for having me on thank you so much for listening you can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast if you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. 
These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.